Hi, welcome to Dyslexia Explored, a podcast sponsored by MindMap Studio, where we share dyslexia stories from all stages and walks of life to help parents of teenagers with dyslexia and also tweenagers with dyslexia find practical tips and inspiration to carry them through the high school years. We share stories from all sorts of different people, parents, teachers, practitioners, business people in this podcast. So hope you enjoy it. This is sixth of six talks given at the Leeds Dyslexia Festival 2018 by Benedict Phillips, an artist and consultant. And the the talk is 3D Thinkers in a 2D World. And it's a lovely finish to the whole series of six because we started off with the organizations of the British Dyslexia Association and PATOS and then going into the keynote and the theory and reading and then the practical application with mind mapping and dyslexia. Now Benedict Phillips is really talking about how to be a dyslexic in the world and where, whereas many of the others are how to be dyslexic and fit into a lexic world, Benedict Phillips is really talking about how he's explored helping people be dyslexic. And it's, a, it's really very entertaining and humorous. And it's a whistle-stop tour of his story. It covers his school years, his six years of special education lessons in a regular school, then still being illiterate at 16, excelling at art school, the years where he ranted about dyslexia and then ended into the creation of the Benedictionary to help lexics translate their words into dyslexic spellings. That's hilarious. And then he's developed something where he planned to help people learn to be dyslexic with his dyslexic exam as a as performance art where he basically said this is how you can be dyslexic and gave them a feel lexic people um a feel of what it's like to be dyslexic and then his years of working in schools i hope you enjoy this talk it's the it's it's more of extracts from the talk because there were quite a few five minute sections that were randomly jo- dropped during recording. I've no idea why, but they've all been stitched together. So I hope you enjoy this final talk from the Leeds Dyslexia Festival series. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. I think I think I'm probably uh, probably probably coming from quite a different perspective uh, in some ways from the other presentations and talks today. Um, uh, there's there's this ten year um, period in a dyslexic's life quite often where they um, they go to school and they have all of this focus if they're identified as dyslexic. Um, and then maybe they'll do a bit of college, and then they get to 21, maybe. And then in a way, that's the end of their, their dyslexia. Um, luckily, they will have been identified and cured with some magic pill of some kind, no doubt. Um, I 
I didn't really have a choice. Um, I, I know a lot of dyslexics who kind of have a choice. Um, they don't have to tell people they're dyslexic. And the reason they don't have to is because they can pass. They can exist in the world, they can present themselves in a way which allows them not to have to identify themselves um, and that's the way they kind of go about their lives. I, on the other hand, um, I've had a different experience to that. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's had quite a dramatic effect on my life. Um, I think uh, I went into a special educational unit when I was nine years old. Um, and I was in that until I was 16. And when I left that unit after seven years of specialist educational tuition, um, I was illiterate. It's in, it's, uh, this mic has been famously inconsistent all day. Um, so I'll just sort of shout and... Uh, it sounds really interesting and you're, you're at the back. There's plenty of seats up here, isn't there? So, um, so most, so, so one of the things I kind of had to kind of, I, I've had to kind of get my head round over the last sort of 30, 30 40 years is um, what, what kind of dyslexic am I? Um, and what's that mean? Um, and, 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 and how am I going to, how am I going to exist in the world? Um, uh, and I think some of you probably kind of guessed from this kind of this, this, this title, 3D thinkers in a 2D world, that, that maybe, maybe I think I'm a 3D thinker and I'm living in a, in a 2D world. Um, it's, a good, it's a good assumption. Um, and the, the, world's, the world is very, very concerned about what's happening now. Culture is always really, really obsessed with what's happening in the moment. Um, and what's happening in the moment is that we're all reading and writing to navigate in our first world experience. Um, but we know that the way that our brains function, the way that they work, has something to do with inherited qualities. So what's interesting is that we know for 30,000 years, at least, humans have been drawing pictures have been using that part of their brain. And they've had to, for you know, hundreds of thousands of years, navigate space and remember where things are. These are really, really useful skills, which seem to be hardwired and learnt, and are there in us. Um, reading is kind of, for the, for the, for the majority, it's really only been around 150 years, you know. So you're kind of looking at, it's, it's a really new thing. It's a really, and it's actually a really hard thing for all brains to learn how to do. So a lot of people forget about all of that stuff and just kind of are presented with this idea that some people maybe are, just, just have a lack. Um, and this causes them to be bad at reading and writing. Um, 
The interesting thing about dyslexia is, to me anyway, is it's not about reading and writing. That's not what dyslexia is about. Um, if it was, there wouldn't be any Italian dyslexics. Well, they kind of aren't. So in countries where there are phonetic languages, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question, but in countries where they have a phonetic language, um, reading and writing doesn't create a barrier in the same way that it does in English. English is one of the hardest languages to grasp from a starting point for anyone. So it's kind of part of, uh, part of the makeup. Um, so my, my, my day job is an artist, um, and I do a lot of different things. I'm not very good at nailing myself down. Um, I'm, a, I'm a real kind of odd job man. I'm also extraordinarily stubborn, um, and nearly everything I do involves reading and writing all the time. I'm constantly having to engage with reading and writing. I graduated at the age of 21, and I learned how to spell my middle name when I was 27. Okay? Um, so there is, so, so it's, the kind of, the way that we think about the experience of dyslexia creates, I think, a set of sort of expectations. Um, and these, these are to do with a long history of of people who, who write and read as being intelligent, and people who do and make as less intelligent. Okay? These cliches are very hardwired in our society. Um, and these are some of the things I'm going to kind of uh, talk about a little bit. Okay, let's, uh, let's wander into the slideshow. Okay. Ah. So, this is me. About, uh, about 1973, 1974, thereabouts. Um, and I had this, um, this really kind of great, great experience. We've got chairs, so I'll use the chair metaphor. Um, uh, I was fantastic with stuff and space as a small child. I was making things all the time. And, okay, I want everybody to look at this this object, um, can we kind of agree that this is a chair? Yeah? yeah? Um, and actually even the, f and, and despite the fact that everybody sat in different places in the room, it's still a chair, it's still kind of, in fact most of you seem to be sat on them. Maybe one person isn't, I don't know. Um, uh, oh, right, okay, so what is it now? It's, it's still a chair. That's the thing. And actually, yeah, it could be upside down. It, you can see the seat. But it carries on being a chair. Um, when I was this person here, um, and through our lives, we, we, you know, we, we, we end up being lots of different people, adjusting to lots of different situations. When I was this person, I navigated the world physically through objects and things. I also spoke a completely invented language, um, which uh, up until about the age of three uh, would seem to be constructed from very clipped sounds. Um, so whatever was coming into my brain, 
Um, I was only getting bits of it, and then I was kind of reflecting this back. And this is a kind of identified trait. Um, uh, you know, and I've, I've read papers that say things like, you know, you can't identify if someone's dyslexic until they're at least five. Nonsense. You can look at a child when they're one, and you can see how they handle objects and move around the space, and you absolutely know. Um, there's something about the physical relationship between space, the way the brain is conceiving space, and the way you're navigating, that seems to have something to do with, with dyslexia. Um, oh, lots of pens. Someone's been drawing. Um, when, then this really weird thing happened to me, um, and things to happen to everybody. I went to school. <laughs> School is a kind of, my God, what a place. Um, okay, so they pretend it's fun at the beginning. <laughs> um, but they're just trying to indoctrinate you into the rules, you know. Because um, actually, they've got hundreds of these, you know, these people that have come in, and they, they have quite a lot of them in the room, and you have to kind of, you know. Um, I've actually spent, you know, uh, quite a lot of time in schools in the past, um, and worked with a lot of teachers as well. And... Yeah, it's a complicated thing. Um, but one of the things that happens, uh, and one of the things that happened to me, was I was introduced to this thing um, called words. And the, the only way I can kind of describe this experience of being introduced to, um, to written language is that I'm just going to perform a little, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a trained actor, so don't, you know, I'll, I'll try and not ham it up too much. Um, so there's, so there's me, and there's the teacher. I'll, uh, I think the teacher should be over here. Um, the teacher says, I'm going to show you something. It's what they do, and then they ask you to repeat that thing. So they showed me, um, so say they show me the letter I. So if there's any really kind of flat, literal thinkers in the room, you've got to imagine this is an I. Everybody else has probably got that, so that's okay. Um, so... So they're showing me this thing, and they're saying, this is, this is the letter I. My brain's going, great. <laughs> and then they go, um, can you make me a letter I? And my brain goes, yeah, of course I can. I haven't hit anything I couldn't do until now. Um, and so, you know, they hand me this metaphorical letter, and I take it, and they go, give it back, write it down, show it to me, and I go, there you go. And they look at it and they go, no, 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 no. What, what I meant was, I meant this. This is the letter I. And I'm going, yeah, that's what I did. That felt right. You know, I saw that and I reflected it back. And, they, and then I go, oh, there it is. And they go, uh, no, that's not quite what I mean. Can you just do that again? We know that it can take a... A dyslexic brain maybe 40 times longer to take on that kind of experience than uh, someone who isn't dyslexic. So we've got this, this conversation starts to take place very, very early on. And there's a point at which there's an expectation from the teacher, very unlikely that the teacher's dyslexic. It's also quite unlikely that the teachers really have that much experience in dyslexia. Um, certainly not in 1974, 1975. 
Um, or, or, or is even considering that it might kind of exist. So this conversation goes on for quite a while. And the teacher's becoming more and more frustrated and upset. And I'm, you know, this version of myself is becoming more and more frustrated and upset as I kind of go, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. My brain's going, it's a chair. Look, it's a chair, it's a chair. And it doesn't matter what you do to it, it's still a chair. What I don't know is that the frame rate, the physical speed at which my brain is working, is incredibly quick. It's super, super fast. It sees shapes at an incredible pace. And it's very, very hard for it to slow down. But then this thing happens. At some point, that teacher goes, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm in authority. This is how this works. I've made the decision. You're not doing this right. And that's not a good, that's not a good experience to have. Um, that's a kind of maybe an oversimplification, but that's kind of my kind of experience at school. Um, was everything felt right, but I was told everything was wrong. Um, and and this, this invented language I, I spoke until I was three, apparently I just woke up one day and went, you know, essentially went, oh, good morning, mother. <laughs> it just kind of, it all clicked. It all clicked into place. Um, we're going to jump forward a few years. Uh, so, so I went through this educational experience, and um, I left school at 16. Um, I, like a lot of people, um, I was lucky. I had one thing, okay? Um, I had one thing that I was good at, one thing that I could lock into, one thing I could invest in, and that took me through education, okay? If I hadn't had that one thing, then maybe I would have ended up being, you know, the 50% in the Young Offenders Institute who are dyslexic. But I didn't. I could draw, I could paint, I could sculpt, I could make, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a familiar story for dyslexics. Um, the art teacher loved me, you know. When I was 12, 13, the art teacher's going, could you do me another drawing that I can take home? You know. Um, there, was a, there was a space for me there. So, I, I went to art college when I was 16. Um, I went from underachieving to overachieving incredibly quickly because I was in my environment where the skills that I had, the characteristics that I had were very, very useful. But I wouldn't have got there if I hadn't had something to believe in, something to do. By the time I was in art college, by the time I'm 18, 19, I'm looking at, experiencing and reflecting on history, geography, politics, mathematics, science, because I'm in education. I didn't do it in school. I couldn't, I couldn't engage with it. 
but actually because I survived it, and it was a survival process. So there's this thing, and I, can't, I kind of said before, it's like I can remember going into a post office and having to write a cheque when I was about 25 or something, and having to ask the um, woman behind the counter, um, uh, you know, how to write out two and three and four, um, that I could fill in this cheque, you know. Uh, this isn't, you know, because I'm on, on this end of the scale where I'm severely dyslexic, there is no kind of... Um, I realised I can't just... I can't wander around this. I can't... Do you know what I mean? I can't, I can't carry on carrying bits of paper with numbers written down on them. So every time I get into that situation, there aren't enough pieces of paper. You know. Um, and so I started... As, as is ideal, I have to say, for a 25-year-old man, having a bit of a rant. Uh, but being, a, 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 being, being a, an artist, I turned this rant into this, this project, the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic. Um, I think down here it says, we do not stand on ceremony, but that doesn't mean we're not prepared to jump on it in our big boots. So this is my first kind of response to this kind of... Um, this kind of experience. And I had to say something about it, I had to communicate something about it. And I'm kind of, you can see I'm quite, I'm kind of injured and tied up by the whole thing. Um, and this symbol here is, that's the inner ear. And this kind of explosion around it is something of my experience. So I was told that I had this bad memory for recalling sequences of sound. So I kind of, uh, I used that, I went back to that. So this is the beginning of my kind of, um, my, my, my experiments into dyslexia. Um, so I went to Speaker's Corner, I took my agenda of the aggressive dyslexic, and I, um, I stood there and I told people about it. Um, and something really interesting happened, uh, which was that um, as I was reading this thing out, which basically talked about how hard it was to read and to write, and how um, people said when they tried to read what I had read that they had to reread and that they had to uh, they had to say it out loud to understand what I was saying. And I was, you know, and I'm saying, well, that's what I have to do every day. Well, I'm reading this out. I'm becoming lost and disorientated in my own text as I, and then I stop. <laughs> and then I just talk to the audience, and suddenly I have an audience. Suddenly I have a conversation, and I realise that. Um, Part of what, part of, part of the way that I function is that I tend to, I've replaced things. They're not the same things, but I have a lot of conversations with people. I like to watch things, I like to listen to things. And this has, this has very much taken up the space where, the, where maybe the reading would have been. So I started thinking about this a few years later, and I wanted, I wanted to find a way of including other people um, in, in this kind of experience that I was having. So I came up with this, this thing, the Benedictionary. I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll have my own, own dictionary. I'll, I'll just I'll read it out for you. Um, and it's just a description of what it, what it was at that point. It's a list of shifting language, of words which find it hard to be nailed down, a word list of the sculpted voice 
of instinct, the lexic for the dyslexic, a phonetic, fanatic, a Benedict's dictionary, blessed words which guide the foreign mind to the things communicated, thought. It was about education, and I decided that what I would do is I, would, I wouldn't spell check. I would just write my application, I would send it, um, and I'd see what happened. Because it was so specifically about this experience, I wanted the people at the other end to start reading what I'd written, and I wanted them to become disorientated. I wanted them to have to reread. I wanted them to share my experience. Because what I was pitching to them was me making work about that idea. And they immediately uh, went, what on earth? as they tried to reread it. And as they read through, because they struggled on with it and they fought their way through it, when they got to the end, they got it. And I got an interview. And I phoned them up and as soon as they picked up the phone, they went, oh, we've sent you a rejection letter by mistake. So it was a kind of, you know, so I thought, right, this is one of those, this is one of those places where I get to play with language. This is where I get to do some things. Okay, they've accepted me on my own terms. Um, so this is the statement I put out before the piece of work went out. It went, warning, it is believed that somewhere between 90 and 95% of the population of the UK are lexic. These people find it hard to spell in interesting ways and are generally excluded from dyslexic culture. It is hoped that through the way of the div, dyslexic intelligent vision, that those affected by this lexic problem can be given hope, support, and practical help to struggle through their creative spelling restrictions. So this is the beginning, the beginning of something is about empathy. Everything I do is about trying to create an experience that someone else can step into. Um, and, and this is just, in a way, what would happen if, if we went society, okay, if, if we, change, we changed what the priorities of education were, okay, and we said, say, um, say, sculpture, storytelling, uh, and navigating were the key subjects on which our society were based, I would suggest that quite a high percentage of the high achievers would be dyslexic. It's just, it's just what the higher, it's where you are in the hierarchy. When I've been in schools, what I find is um, that my, my feeling generally is that maybe a third of the school can deal with the system really well. A third can get by and can navigate it and the third are fighting to stay afloat. Um, but actually, that's, that's pretty much what it's like in most situations. You go into a room full of people, and the object is to stand up and shout and wave your arms around and play a character. About a third of the people there are going to be able to do it. A third will force themselves to do it, and a third are going to stand back. You know, it's kind of like it's just... The problem comes when you just have one system and everybody has to fit into it. So. Anyway, ah, here we go. So this is the div, the dyslexic intelligent vision, who has, quite rightly, uh, has his vision art goggles here, and he has his, his dyslexic uh, intelligent vision hat. 
um, which is the hat of empowerment, the dunce cap reclaimed for the, uh, the function of, of empowerment. Um, what I did was, um, and I've been doing this for some time, I found that there was a real problem about having conversations with people about what it was to be dyslexic. And the problem kind of came about because, um, well, because, because I, I was wrong and they were right, and that's where we started. I was dyslexic and they were normal. There was absolutely no requirement for that individual to explain what their normality meant. I wrote an article about a year ago, and in that, my, uh, uh, I, I pointed out the average, you know, we talk, I was talking about, you know, what, what definitions of people are, and I said, after all, the average person is Chinese. You know, it's kind of like, what do you mean? And so I st I've been using this term for some time, this is about 2005, and I start, I've been using this term for some time anyway, and I'm having conversations with people. I go, I'd go, well, from your lexic point of view. And something really interesting started to happen, which is that people who weren't dyslexic had been given a name, and in that conversation with me, they would start telling me about their reading and writing experience, about their own unique relationship with learning and communicating through language. And that was really revealing for me. Um, I, discover, I discovered some things that I'd never heard of, things that are kind of, um, I don't even know if there's any particular much writing about these things. So there's a thing called hyperlexia, which is just not dyslexia. Hyperlexia is something I've, I, I, met, I met one guy uh, in the UK and one guy in America uh, who described themselves as hyperlexic. I don't, you know. And what it means is that they read so fast they cannot stop themselves. They read so fast they can't take the information in. The first time I met someone like that, he said, um, he said, I love your poetry. It's the only stuff I've been able to read in about three years. Because it's so hard to read, I have to stop, slow down, word, you know. And he said, it's great, I love it, you know. Um, so so this, this idea had been there quite, quite a long time. Um, so, so I thought, well, okay. I spent my life learning, learning how to fit into this world. Um, Surely there's some value in other people fitting into mine. Um, so I did a 45-minute exam, sit-down exam, in Becoming Dyslexic in 2005. Um, there's, there's a documentary on my Vimeo site, uh, so Benedict Phillips. I'm sure as, you, as soon as you get there and you spot the, the profile picture of me in a two-foot-tall pointy hat, you'll work out you're in the right place. Um, and... In that exam, um, so my relationship with, with written language is a sculptural kind of experience. Um, it never really made much difference which way round I wrote words in terms of the speed. So writing the word backwards or writing it forwards, I'm processing letter by letter. I'm processing phonetically. So one of the things in the exam was I wrote from the bottom right-hand corner of the board and wrote, and wrote across up to the top, all backwards. And then when I got to the top, I turned around to the 65 
lexics in the room and, and said, um, I hope you're up to there by now. <laughs> and, and took the rubber and started working my way down. So that's one of the things that, it's one of the activities that happened. Um, there were some really kind of, there were some really, really, really interesting responses from people who said they'd worked with dyslexics for years, who came out of that experience saying that I've never, I've never been inside of that experience before. I've never felt disorientation and dread in relationship to reading and writing in the way that I did in that room. Even though it was a performance artwork, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like there was a, an application for a university place. They, you know, they, they'd, uh, they, so, the kind of, and obviously it's like, just because someone else has got rules, so this is, these are the crossword puzzles they had to do. So once you filled in the crossword puzzle and you put the black squares in afterwards, it's really logical, <laughs> isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's like you can spell it however you like, and then, and then you fill it in afterwards. So it's a kind of like... I'm a lot funnier when, I, when I'm talking about serious things. If I talk about serious things, it's really not so anyway. Anyway, so, so these are the kind of things that the, the exam, lexic to dyslexic. Um, the, yeah, the object of the exam is to prove your ability to learn to be dyslexic. Uh, extra marks will be given for inventiveness. Um, oh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Subversion, subversion of the lexic way, marks may be deducted if you misuse DDS, dictionary defined spelling. Um, illegibility may be taken into consideration. You know, so it's, you know, it's kind of playing with these. Um, being dyslexic, the object of the exam is a bit ambiguous. Your ability to learn to be dyslexic is, by your own admission, pretty good. You will see the others uh, see that your exam has already been given a mark with a gold star. Um, you know, so, so what I did was I, I wanted an experience where the, the dyslexics in the room were having a positive, enjoyable, free experience in an exam, and I wanted the lexics in the room to experience an alternative perspective, a different relationship with language. Um, so that was, that was the idea of that. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, this, I think one of my favourite. I think one of my favourite questions. Uh, yeah, a man walks down the road towards you with a shopping bag in each hand, weighing seven pounds each, and wearing a bobble hat. What's written on the back of his coat? <laughs> so, for me, that's what every that's what every question ever asked in school sounded like. Anyway, so, uh, it's like what? Why am I walk, why am I following this man down the street in the first place? So, yeah. So there you go. Um, this is actually my, my, uh, my, this is the exam papers people came back a couple of weeks later and they came and, uh, and they received their, their, their award, which was self, uh, which was kind of, basically had a whole load of grades on it. I think people were expecting that I was going to grade their papers. Um, you know, but what I did was I, I, I handed them their, you know, their big A3 printed and then embossed with my teeth mark. Um, uh, I, can, I, I can explain that, madam. Uh, and, and on it, I had a whole list of marks, you know, grades. But, they were, but, but the whole thing about the grade was that you decided on any given day what grade you felt you should have. 
Um, and the highest grade you could get was div. So <laughs> dyslexic intelligent vision. So uh, I'm from Leeds. So that's how come I'm here. Is, um, and, and div... Div didn't mean dyslexic intelligent vision when I went to school at Rounder <laughs> in 1985. Um, it, it, it meant idiot, it meant stupid, it meant so many other things. And I think the thing is you have to take the things that you've got and work with those. That's the, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the simple message. Oh, oops, I seem to have slipped into a three-hour version of this, so I'm asking you on. While I was there, I started uh, talking to other adult dyslexics, and it's kind of as a research process, so uh, Rebecca here traced every single line and mark she could find from everything that had been wiped off the board previously, um, and that was, that was part of the kind of the memory that she had about, about, uh, about school and the way that she, she interacted with language. Um, a year later, I went to Kentucky in Louisville, uh, where I'm an honorary citizen. Uh, uh, someone did ask me about this. They said, um, and I did ask someone there. They they said, what, how do how do they feel about men in two foot two foot point, two foot tall pointy white hat in in Kentucky? And what was really interesting was that that's our that's our prejudice actually. What what they said was it's got nothing to do with a pointy hat. We can see your face. You're not Klu Klux Klan. It's all about covering yourself up. So they, but and actually, the dunce cap is a very, very strong image in America. Considerably stronger in their culture than it is in in ours. So they understood. Uh, you know, they needed the word "div" explaining a little bit. <laughs> you know, but uh, there you go. That's Louisville. And. Um, this is a guy from Sheffield who, uh, when I met him, explained that when he was a kid, he had to use a mirror to put inside of a book, um, and he would read in the mirror. When he was a kid, language was literally flipped. I just thought that was extraordinary. So he used, so he'd read in the mirror. It just like, you know. And I thought, wow, that's the most amazing thing. And then a year later, I met this guy in, in Louisville, in Kentucky, and he said, when I was a kid, I had to use a mirror in a book. Text, and I thought, this is, you know, I've only... It's like, how, you know, how common are these, these alternative ways? And, and so they, they, they had to work their way around them. They had to find their way through that in some way. But I just thought it was quite extraordinary. Um, and these are some of the, uh, some of the people that I met uh, in, in the UK and America while I was doing that project. And all of these drawings are the invisible conversation, the conversation between me and them, talking about our shared experiences, our journeys, and then marked onto the, onto the blackboard. So. Um, I, I love this quote. Uh, Grown-ups <laughs> never understand anything by themselves. It is tiresome for children to always and forever be explaining things to them. Um, and I, I became really interested in this idea of space, architecture, and society. Um, so I created this, this model of a tree based on the mathematical uh, theorem of phi. Uh, which is the kind of mathematics of the golden section. Um, so every single branch is identical uh, and then positioned in a perfect spiral running up around it. And each length and object is all based on kind of mathematical kind of system. Um, into it, I put these 10 quotes from 10 different perspectives, different voices in culture from politics, you know, kind of history, science, 
Now, it's very interesting in what happened when you kind of put all of those things together. You take the filter away and you can't understand or, or connect to anything. So I was really interested in that, that kind of idea. Um, I started thinking it would be nice to tell people about it. Uh, and I thought it would be quite nice for, for it not always to be me. So I created this guy, uh, the Red Div. And uh, he's my evangelist. And he was the person who first started doing this 3D things in a 2D world. Um, and I kind of did it in this kind of conversational way, but also occasionally um, I, will, I will get dressed up and, 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 and then, then me, the Benedict Phillips, gets used as a resource. Um, and ah, there he is. Um, so you remember I had this little online dictionary, the Benedict Dictionary. Um, uh, as this kind of 10-year anniversary in 2011, I, um, I got uh, the V&A had said, come and do a lecture, uh, come and do your 3D thinkers at the V&A. And I thought, I said, how, how long can I put it off for? And they said, uh, I think they said something like seven months. And I thought, I've always, always, always wanted to do a hard copy of the Benedictionary. So I went to this guy I've been talking to for years and said, I want to publish my, I want to publish the first lexic to dyslexic translation dictionary. The book that basically helps everyone become a dyslexic. Okay, so, and he said, great, uh, uh, when do you need it by? I said, six months. He said, uh, is it written? I said, no. He said, uh, I'm going to get a piece of paper. I'm going to write you a timeline on that. And if you don't hit these dates, it's not happening. Um, so there are over two and a half thousand dyslexic spellings in this in this book and I and they're from all sorts of different kind of cultural perspectives it's like a cultural map it's like I think I took about 70 different kind of key areas things like politics and history and a whole load of different things and collated all these words and sat there for hours and hours as someone read them to me as I typed them in in my uh, waiting for those lovely little red lines to appear um, <laughs> So that's kind of how it was constructed, plus a thousand words that were taken from the previous benediction. Um, so I was, I was looking at it the other day, and it's kind of, uh, I really like, I put a quote in the beginning of the, um, let's see, it's, yeah, so that's, a, that's what it kind of looks like. Um, and it's a kind of signed, limited type of object. Uh, and it's kind of, you know, there's some of the spreads. I kind of, uh, and it's got illustrations as well, which all of the illustrations illustrate concepts that are related to the word, but not the word themselves. So like dyslexia, there's the thing, and then the dyslexia is like slightly one step to the side of that, you know. So, so you've kind of got this, uh, I think, I, yeah, it's, um, so, so the word that's being kind of referenced, I can't read it very well in there, so I'll just have to find one. I do like the windy day, though. Uh, I can't remember what the key word was, but that's no, a bit uh, probably better over here. So, no, they made it very tiny on my screen. Forget about that. Um, so I was really, yeah, I was interested in adding all of these other little extras into here. So there's an introduction, um, and I thought it'd be nice to, to quote something from, from an academic, you know, I'm not an academic myself, um, I do like a bit of context, so uh, 
you know, so in here it says, it's salutary to, it's salutary to recall that the great Anglo-Saxon homilist, Archbishop Walford, had no English dictionary at his disposal. The early plays of Shakespeare were written before the first English dictionary was published. It is self-evident, therefore, that English literature can proceed at the highest level of performance without the existence of elaborate lexicons and grammars. The spoken language has always proceeded without recourse to dictionaries. So it seemed like a good place to start, to, to, uh, to attack the dictionary. Um, there's, uh, this is also in, in, in the introduction, this is kind of the purpose of it, or the, the repurposing of it. For many years, the vast majority of lexics, or restricted creative spelling disorder sufferers, <laughs> have struggled to free themselves from the arduous constraints of dictionary-defined spelling. In 2001, the world's first lexic to dyslexic translation dictionary, the Venner Dictionary, went online, allowing lexics an opportunity to free themselves at last from their constraints of their condition and to taste a little of what it's like to be dyslexic. Um, I, think, I think when you've had so much in your life being told to be like something you can't. Um, I was thinking about this um, last week, about this, the thing about being included or, or, or something being inclusive. So I was included in my English lessons, my English O-level. Okay? So from the age of 13 to the age of 16, I sat in a room while I was, you know, recognised as, uh, as, as dyslexic and doing special educational, you know, kind of support. We'll talk about that later. Um, and This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now. 